We're finishing today our series on Christmas through the eyes of different people. We started several weeks ago with Mary, Christmas through the eyes of Mary. Then we moved on to talk about Joseph. Then we talked about the shepherds. On Christmas Eve, we talked about the angels. And so today we want to talk about Christmas through the eyes of the wise men. Anthony has already read the text for us today from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. We'll be working our way through that again as we see what God has for us today in, in seeing what these wise men saw and how they worshipped the Lord. But before we look at the text, I invite you to bow for a word of prayer with me. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, the, not only the content, but the author. And we look to you today. To, we come with open hearts and ask that you would fill our hearts with your truth, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of our hearts as we see your, the, the Christmas story once again through the eyes of the wise men that we would be drawn to the Savior, just as they were. They were far off, and yet you brought them near. And so we pray today that we would be brought near to you, and that Jesus Christ would be glorified and lifted up. Cleanse my lips to speak your truth now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, we had been planning this for several weeks, and we knew that this one was going to be the day after Christmas, so we weren't exactly sure how many people were going to be here, frankly. Um, and we also had planned to have the kids with us. But because Christmas was yesterday, most of the kids, and by kids I mean kids, um, they're at home resting today because they gave their all yesterday I'm sure they opened all their gifts and were able to break them very quickly and enjoy them and all of that, but um, there aren't any kids here with us live today. But if they had come, I had it all prepared uh, for them to join in the service with us because when you're a kid, listening to some old guy talk for 35, 40 minutes, that's boring. That's terrible. Ugh. Who wants to do that? So I got the idea, and if you want to do it as well, you can, but this is mostly for the children who obviously today are all at home, but if you're watching online and you want to participate with this with your parents, in, in the sermon today, there are some people in the Christmas story that we've never seen before, or certain kinds of people that we've never seen before. Um, so far, as I said, we've talked about Mary, and we've talked about Joseph, and the shepherds, and the angels. Now, all of those human people are Jewish. But the main characters in the story today aren't Jewish. Herod is, well, we're going to find out who Herod is in a minute, but um, we definitely know that the wise men are Gentiles. They are not Jewish people. So I got this idea in my head to have the kids interact during the sermon. And I got this idea actually from uh, Jewish synagogues. 
Um, when they read the story of uh, the book of Esther, every year in, in the Jewish festivals, they celebrate different things, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Pentecost, the Passover feast, and so on. And the, the last one they have is called the Feast of Purim. And that is to celebrate how Esther and Mordecai saved uh, the people of Israel. So when they read the story in the synagogue, every time Haman, that's the bad guy in that story, every time Haman's name comes up, everyone boos. Boo, boo, because he's the bad guy. And every time Mordecai's name is mentioned, everyone cheers. Yay, yay. So if you want to do that, and you're here in the auditorium, you're more than welcome to do that today. We don't have Haman and Mordecai, but what we've got are Herod is a bad guy. So if you want to say boo, boo, you go ahead. He's a bad guy. We will find out why in a minute. But if you want to cheer for the wise men, every time I mention the wise men or read from the text and it mentions the wise men, if you want to cheer, yay, for the wise men, you go ahead. Feel free. I will not judge you in any way, whether you do or not. It's up to you. All right? So with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about where we want to go today. The outline for the sermon today, we want to start off by talking a little bit about who these people are. As I mentioned, um, these, the main characters in the, this part of the Christmas story today are not Jewish. Uh, so who is Herod? Where did he come from? One of the tricky things, too, about the New Testament is there are a whole bunch of Herods. There's Herod is here when Jesus is born, and then there's this other Herod guy, and at the end, Jesus calls him a fox. And then in the book of Acts, there's another Herod guy, and it's like, this guy just lives forever. <laughs> Only it's not the same guy. So we're going to talk a little bit about who is Herod. And then we're going to talk about what is a wise man, where did they come from, all that kind of stuff. And that, that's the background information that you need in order to be able to uh, understand uh, the three scenes that come in chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel. So the three scenes that we're going to look at today are from verses 1 to 8. Scene 1 is where the wise men come and they visit Herod. And then scene 2 is from verses 9 to verse 12, and this is where the wise men visit Jesus. And then scene 3, unfortunately, is a terrible scene, and this is where Herod visits Bethlehem and does some terrible things. All right, so that's our text for today. That's what we want to do. So let's start off by talking about this Herod guy. Ooh, who is Herod? Who is this Herod guy? So when we talk about Herod, I said, oh, thank you. Well, you threw me off there. Very good. So Herod is a Gentile. Now, to understand in the history of Israel, Israel's always fighting against enemies. The, the main powers in the Middle East traditionally have always been, if I had a map here. So here's Israel right here, right? And you've got Egypt. So if I'm facing you, Egypt would be down over here. And then you've got Assyria, Greece, Persia, all of those, right? And so these ones over here are the big powers in the world. 
And what's right in the middle between the big powers in the world is Israel. So when these two groups want to fight each other, they always have to go through Israel to fight each other. So Israel is always in the center of big messes. So the reason this is important is by the time of the birth of Jesus, about a hundred years before or so, the, it's when the Roman Empire is starting to really get big. And so um, as you know, the Greek Empire is going down and the Roman Empire is, is coming up, and there's a little window of time, starts in about 167 B.C., when a group of people called the Maccabees, uh, who are Jewish people that don't like all these foreigners telling them what to do, and so they rebel, and for a period of about 60 or 70 years, they actually control Israel as an independent state. Um, others try to take over, but they are not able to. And so the name of the people were the Maccabees, but then they came to be known as the Hasmonean dynasty. And they tried to operate Israel like it was operated under David and Solomon and so on. So why am I telling you all this? Part of what they did was, when they took over, they not only tried to control the area of Israel, they went south to the area where Edom is. Petra is their capital, and it's this fortress and the rocks and all of that. And this area of Edom is where the descendants of Esau lived. So Herod, coming back to our story, Herod descends from Edom. In the New Testament, he's called Idumean. That means he's from Edom. So when the Hasmoneans took over this area, they forced everybody to convert to Judaism. So even though Herod and his family line is not Jewish, he considered himself to be Jewish. Because by the time he was born in 73 BC, he sees himself as following in this line of the people who are under the Hasmoneans. But because he's not actually physically from birth Jewish, he also gets very, very friendly with the Roman Empire. And he was a fantastic politician. He loved to balance trying to please the Jews, but also please the Romans. So in being loyal to the Roman government, um, they set him up in 40 BC to be the king of Judea. So there's a big Roman empire, but in each area they have a local authority. So Herod was the local authority under the Romans, and he was called king of the Jews king in Judea. And he started ruling in that area from 40 BC. So, as I said, he's got people who he's ruling, who are Jewish, but he also has to maintain loyalty to the Romans. So what he did was, the first wife he married was the great-great-granddaughter of the Hasmoneans. 
So his first wife was a lady named Miriam. And he married her so that all the Jews would think he was Jewish. That he, you know, just like everyone tries to marry up, he married up into the Hasmonean family. And so he's trying to be good to Jews. He also took the temple that had been rebuilt in 500 BC and he expanded it. He didn't change the temple, but he changed the court area around it, made it beautiful, and spent 25 years building that up so that it was this very beautiful, dynamic place for Jews to worship. But then he would do little things like at each of the gates, he would put Roman eagle insignias. And the people would get upset and say, why are you putting all this Roman stuff here? So he was constantly trying to balance between his Roman superiors, who were watching what he was doing as a ruler, but also identifying himself as a Jewish person, even though he wasn't, to try and uh, maintain control over the people that he was leading. And unfortunately, as time went by, he became pretty paranoid. And as his life went on, he was more and more convinced that somebody was trying to get him, to overthrow him. So he killed his wife. Then he killed his second wife. He killed his son. He killed his second son. He killed his third son. He killed a whole bunch of people in his family. He is a bad guy. He is a, boo, he's a very bad guy. Really bad guy. Just, just to give you one indication, when he was dying, which was 4 BC, when he was dying, he decided that he wanted people to mourn his death but he knew that most of the Jewish people didn't like him. So in his will, he wrote, just uh, right after I die, I want you to kill all of the famous leaders in Israel. Why? And his idea was, if you kill all those people, then everybody will be sad and they'll be crying and nobody will know why they're crying. Are they crying because Herod died? Or are they crying because all these other people died? This is the way he thought. He was super paranoid. He was a bad, bad man. So Herod the Great, boo, he's a bad guy. All right. So who are the wise men then? Yay, who are the wise men? So the word that is used for wise men in English Uh, The Greek word in the the text in Matthew is uh, magoi. And this is where we get our English word magic. So sometimes they're called wise men, sometimes they're called magi, sometimes they're called magicians. They don't do magic tricks like pulling bunnies out of a hat and any of that kind of stuff. But what these people are, are they would be experts. And uh, the the wise men, that's why they're called wise men, that would advise the king about certain things. So in the courts of Mesopotamia or Persia or any area like that in the east, also uh, some people think they may have come from Arabia in the south, in those areas 
the, the rulers would have people who would advise them. And what they would do is they would be experts in ancient and sacred texts, and they would also look at the stars and follow the movements of the stars, looking for signs of historical events or important events. And so the signs would tell them something big was going to happen. We get a little hint of this in the book of Daniel. You know, Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity and they were there to advise the king. They were magi. They were magoi. They were wise men who helped the king. So it's not talking about some occult, weird kind of thing like that. These are people who are looking for... Uh, signs to be able to advise people in authority. They are the wise men. Yay! So, that gives you some background so that we can move in now to the text and see how God protects Jesus in the midst of this and what is Matthew trying to do with this story. Now, I'll say something right at the beginning that becomes really important at the end. See if you can keep this in your mind. If we go all the way back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel, which is really just one chapter earlier, remember how the gospel of Matthew starts. It starts with a genealogy, and it gets divided into three parts, right? The first part is Abraham, 14 generations from Abraham, and then 14 generations from David, and then 14 generations from the exile. Now, we've seen so far that uh, Jesus gets identified with Abraham and he gets identified with David in the different parts of the story. Today, we're going to see how Matthew ties in this idea of the exile through the wise men. All right, so keep that in mind because that becomes important in the last few verses that we'll read. So if you have your Bible and you want to look at Matthew chapter 2, we'll start at verse 1, and we'll just work our way through the text, and we'll see what this story has to contribute to show Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, the Savior of the world. So verse 1 says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, boo. Behold, wise men, yay, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, this phrase that the wise men speak when they call Jesus king of the Jews this phrase is only ever used one other time in the New Testament. Do you know where? When Jesus is crucified, there's a sign above the cross that says, King of the Jews. And one of the things that Matthew is doing with his gospel is he's, he's drawing a parallel between these two parts of Jesus' life. The beginning of his life and how people responded to him, and the end of his life, and how people responded to him. Very, very similar. 
Where is he who is born king of the Jews? By the way, right now, who is king of the Jews? Herod. So they come to visit Herod, Mr. Paranoid, Mr. Kill Everybody, and they ask him a question. Um, we're looking for this guy who's the, the king of the Jews. And notice, notice the, 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 the verb tense. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They're not saying, where is the guy who later on is going to become king of the Jews? They're asking the question, the one who is born just now, who is already now the king of the Jews, where is that guy? And so you can imagine what Mr. Paranoid's thinking at this point. I'm the king of the Jews. What's, what's going on here? And, he said, and so they say, for we have seen his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, oftentimes there's been this whole big um, apocryphal, I'll use that phrase, a load of information about who these people were. How many there were, we don't know. But the traditional answer is three because there were three gifts. People have made up names for them. Uh, Melchior and I forget the other two guys' names. Nowhere is any of this in the text. But the other idea that we often get is somehow that these guys started over here somewhere in the east and that there's this some magic star that was floating through the sky and they just followed it sort of like some sort of GPS to get over to here. Now, they do follow the star, but they follow the star from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, which is about seven miles. But what they're saying here is, we have been studying the text, we have been looking at the stars, and the signs are saying that someone is to be born in Israel. So they come to Israel to try and figure out who that is. So let's understand what's going on. There's not some magic star that flies here, because... Because I read so many books that talked about this is impossible, the story has to be made up because there's no stars that float through the sky and blah, blah, blah. That's not what the text is saying. Let's read it and understand it and know what it's saying. So they have come because the alignment of the stars has said a big event is going to happen in Israel. The king is going to be born. So they say, we're going to go there. We're going to figure out what this is, and we're going to worship him. So it's interesting to see, you know, Romans talks about it this way. These guys probably had never read the Old Testament, didn't know anything about the Bible, and yet God used his natural revelation to show them to come. Romans 1 talks about this, that the heavens declare the glory of God. And we can know that God is there. We can't know who Jesus is or how to be saved, but we can know that God is there. And God uses in this story as well his own natural revelation to bring these Gentiles from far, far away to worship the Savior. So we've got a map here, and there's a couple of different lines there just to show you where experts think they may have come from. Now, they didn't travel all of that, but if they came from the south in Arabia, they may have come all the way down from the south edge of Arabia, 
up to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. Or what's more likely is that they probably came from the area of um, what today is modern Iran, which would be Persia. So they would make their way along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers there and around what's called the Fertile Crescent to come down to Jerusalem to meet with Herod, who thought of himself as king of the Jews. So we move on in scene one, verse three says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Yeah, I guess so. Why? Because he's the king of the Jews. And he's not happy to hear this. And the text continues on. And all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem wasn't upset that the king of the Jews was born. Jerusalem was upset because the guy who thinks he's the king of the Jews is upset. And they know what happens when he gets upset. They're very worried because they know that this guy's crazy. And if he's mad and if he's troubled, then there's going to be big problems. So what does Herod do? He assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod's not happy, and so he brings together two groups. He calls them the chief, Matthew calls them the chief priests and the scribes of the people. Who are they? The chief priests always came from the Sadducees. They were a, a group of religious leaders that uh, were a little bit more friendly to the Romans. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. But the chief priest was always selected from the Sadducees. The scribes were the people who actually taught the law, knew the law, were experts in the law. And those were primarily Pharisees. So Herod goes to the Sadducees, who don't like the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, who don't like the Sadducees, and both of those don't like Herod. So we got all these people who mutually don't like each other, trying to figure out, how are we going to maintain our power? How are we going to stay in charge? So it's one of those deals where the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So I don't like you, you don't like me, but we don't really don't like them. So let's work together and figure out what we're going to do. So he gets all these people together that really don't like each other. And he asks them, you're experts in the law. You know what the Bible says. Tell me what it says. Where will the king, where will the Messiah be born? So they tell him in verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, why do they say Bethlehem of Judea? There's actually a Bethlehem in the far north of Israel as well. So they're just identifying which Bethlehem. In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And the prophet they're talking about is Micah. And then they quote the text. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So what's going on here? They, they seem to know 
where the Messiah is supposed to be born. So if you look in Micah 5, Micah 5 uh, verse 2 is where they're quoting from. At least almost the whole quote is from there. The last part of the quote actually comes from 2 Samuel 5, the part where it says, who will shepherd my people Israel? So Micah 5, in the Old Testament context there, it's a promise from God through the prophet Micah that a ruler will come who will shepherd God's people and he will come from Bethlehem. Who else came from Bethlehem? David. So the Messiah in the line of David is going to be the shepherd for the people of Israel. That last line comes from 2 Samuel 5 when God is talking about David and his kingdom and he says, you will shepherd my people Israel. So here you have these Jewish scholars, religious leaders who know what the text says, who know that the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem, who know that the Messiah is going to shepherd the people of Israel. And what is their attitude? Mm, this isn't good. This is not good. Frankly, I find it astonishing. I'm an expert in, I'm thinking in their mind, I'm an expert in the Bible. And when the Bible tells me something, it's like, yeah, I don't really like that. That's no good. That's not for me. And so... What Matthew is telling us, notice too, that Matthew loves to say, this is to fulfill what the prophet said. And then he quotes Hosea, then he quotes here Micah, sometimes he quotes Isaiah, and so on. But here, notice that he doesn't put in the words of the, these Pharisees and Sadducees that this is fulfilling anything, because they don't think it's fulfilling anything because they really don't care. They like to keep their power. So you've got these religious leaders, the political leader, and they are really, really, really unhappy to hear this, that these crazy, disgusting foreigners are now coming in and telling us that the king of the Jews is born. What a load of rubbish. What a load of garbage. And yet, Matthew is trying to show us Jesus is the direct fulfillment of the prophecy predicting the coming of the Messiah to be both the righteous king, like David, who would shepherd his people. What is the job of the, pro of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders? They are the ones who are supposed to shepherd the people but they are bad shepherds. Which is why later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. I'm not like these bad shepherds who give their lives for money and give their lives for pleasure. I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. So when we get to the end of scene one, what we're really seeing is Gentiles are coming and saying, we know that the Messiah is here. Just help us locate him. 
And the political leaders and the religious leaders in Israel are saying, mm, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm not happy about this. So this becomes very clear when we end this scene. What does Herod boo, have to say? Herod says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly. Yes, yay, wise men. And ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. In other words, he said, tell me, I'm making some notes here. Tell me a little bit more about what you know. When did this, this astrological sign constellation, whatever you saw, when did that appear? And I'll do some little math. Okay, let's figure out how old this uh, king of the Jews, when he was born. How long ago? So he asked them secretly to find out what time the star appeared. And then he said, okay, you, you go ahead. You go on to Bethlehem. Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. What a load of garbage. He's not there to worship him. What, why is he looking for this information? Well, the, the story's later going to tell us. So he can kill him. Get rid of him. So that's the end of scene one. Herod's not at all interested in worshiping Jesus. The religious leaders are not at all interested. They don't talk to uh, the wise men. Let's go with you. Let's find this king of the Jews. Let's find the Messiah. Let's all go. No. It's Herod that has to say, you tell me. But his motives are not pure. He wants to kill Jesus. So then we move on to scene two. Scene two is where the wise men actually go and visit Jesus. So starting at verse nine, it says, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it, when it rose, so now they see the star, and it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So in the distance between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, the, they were able to see the star and to see that it was pointing down to Bethlehem, and so they went to Bethlehem. So the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why? Because Isaiah 60 verse 3 says, The nations will be drawn to the Messiah's light, and he will bring them joy. So they went into the house, verse 11 says, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So here we have these Gentiles. It's been identified to them that the king of the Jews has been born. They come and they worship him, and they bring him gifts. Notice the gifts that they bring. Gold, showing that he is royal. Incense, 
which is offered to a deity, showing that Jesus is divine. Now, do I think that the wise men necessarily knew that Jesus was divine? Maybe not. But we know that Matthew knows that Jesus is divine. And the myrrh is what is a kind of perfume that is used for people uh, when they die. So these three gifts picture who Jesus is. He is the king. He is the son of God. And he is going to give his life to save his people from their sins. So scene two ends very quickly. It says, being warned in a dream. Remember Matthew had a dream, actually had several dreams. Now the wise men have a dream. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So they, they get tipped to the fact that Herod is a liar and he's a crazy man and he's not really there to worship the king. He's going to try and kill him. So they go a different way. So, as I said, there are several texts in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah coming and, and all the nations coming to worship him. Psalm 72, 10 and 11 says, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Isaiah 60 Verse 6, verse 3 is the one that talks about the light. The Messiah's light will draw people to himself. Verse 6 says, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So these wise men not Jewish, not familiar with the Bible, are drawn to worship the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. Now we're going to skip over a couple of verses because those are the verses where Joseph gets warned in a dream and he takes Jesus down to Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son, Hosea 11 verse 1. We looked at that when we talked about Matthew. But we want to finish the story with Herod Boo, and the wise men, yay. So we'll go to verse 16. Verse 16 says, this is where Herod visits Bethlehem. Then Herod, when, boo, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, yay, became furious. He was mad. And you, the, what's that line with the Incredible Hulk? You won't like me when I'm angry. Nobody's liking Herod when he's angry. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Why did he pick that age? Remember, he was writing down when he talked to them before. When did you see the star? And how, how many months ago was that? And he's just doing the basic math to say, okay, Probably Jesus at this point is maybe six months to maybe a year and a half old. So let's just be safe and let's kill all the babies who are two years of age and under. Just to be safe. Make sure we wipe them all out. They're gone. 
So he kills all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Because he wanted to make sure that he would wipe out any possible rivals. Now, how many people or how many babies did he probably kill? Bethlehem is not a big place. And I don't want to make this number sound trivial because it's not. But we're probably talking about maybe one or two dozen babies who are killed. Which is horrible. Which is terrible. But a lot of people will say, Josephus never mentions this in his histories and, and there's no record. Herod killed so many people that a few babies in a small town would never even rank as something to be written down. This was just what he would do after lunch. This is not a big deal for him. It's horrible. It's terrible. But this is the kind of person that he was. So paranoid, so worried that he would wipe out the infants two years and under just to be safe, to make sure. But Matthew looks at this and he's reminded of the book of Jeremiah. And these are the last two verses of this part of the story. Verse 17 says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. All the other times, he just says the prophet. But this time specifically, he wants you to know it's Jeremiah. And he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31. And the verse that he quotes is Jeremiah 31 verse 15. And here's what that verse says. A voice was heard in Ramah. Ramah is a place, Jerusalem is here, Bethlehem is here, Ramah is a little place in between, on the way, in between. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. Who's Rachel? There's no Rachel in this story. Who's Rachel? Rachel is um, Jacob's wife. And she had many children. Her sister Leah had many children, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if we go all the way back to Genesis, Rachel died giving birth, and she was buried in Ramah, which is this path between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. So, what's going on here? Um, why is Rachel being mentioned in Jeremiah? Jeremiah lives probably, probably 1,200 years later. Why is Rachel coming up in the book of Jeremiah? Because what Jeremiah is talking about is Rachel is dead and buried in this area. But all of the children who are going into exile under the Babylonians are being taken out 
and traveling up and over and around to be exiled in Babylon. And so Jeremiah is using the grave of Rachel to say she is crying because her children are going into exile. They're going to be gone. They're not going to be in the land anymore. Why do they go into exile? Because of their disobedience, because of their wickedness. And so, what's going on here? Jeremiah thinks back to Rachel and thinks, how would she feel to see all of her children going into exile? And Matthew thinks of Jeremiah thinking of Rachel and says, see how all of these mothers in Bethlehem are weeping just like Rachel was weeping over her children going into exile. These ones are weeping over the ones who have been killed by the foreign power. And so the parallel is there. Now the beautiful thing, that that part of the story is terrible, but the beautiful thing, if you look at the rest of the context of Jeremiah 31, verse 15 is, comes in the middle of a long section in Jeremiah 31 where the whole chapter, except for verse 15, talks about the future days when God will bring a new covenant with his people, when he will restore them to their land, forgive their sins, and bless them, and bring them peace and prosperity. But for now, in Jeremiah's time, they have gone off into exile. Verse 16 of Jeremiah 31 says, there will be a return. And I'm sure Matthew quotes verse 15, knowing that his readers will know what comes in verse 16. Now that's a lot of esoteric information. Let me summarize it in one brief sentence. What Matthew wants us to know from this is now that Jesus has come, even though there is weeping and sadness over these ones who have been lost, the exile is over. The Messiah has come. And peace and prosperity is coming through this baby that God is presently protecting in Egypt right now and then out of Egypt Jesus will come and he will be baptized and go through the 40 days in the wilderness symbolizing that history of Israel and he will save his people from their sins he is bringing a new covenant the heir to David's throne has come the exile is over. The true Son of God has arrived, and he will introduce the promised new covenant. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people. That's Jeremiah 31. Jesus brings the new covenant.
And so the wise men go home and they have worshipped the king of the Jews. Herod goes on and he gets a horrible, disgusting disease and he dies. Yay! So, but what has, what is, what is Matthew trying to show us in this story? You've got the political and the religious leaders in Israel rejecting the Messiah. They don't want anything to do with him. And yet Gentiles from far, far away who don't know anything about him have come to worship him. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, it's the exact same thing. Jesus is put on trial by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and by the Roman government, and he is crucified, and above his cross it says, King of the Jews. He is the King of the Jews. They just didn't want to accept it. So I want to ask you today, how will you respond this Christmas? Are you going to be like the wise men? Are you going to be like Herod and the religious leaders? Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the end of the exile. He has brought peace with God if you'll trust in Him as your Lord and Savior. I would invite you today, if you have not done so, the best Christmas present you could ever receive is peace with God. Trust Jesus. Follow Him. He is your Savior. Let's bow for prayer. Father God, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that even in Jeremiah, when you promised that there would be a new covenant coming, that Jesus Christ himself brings that new covenant into effect through his blood. We pray today for, for each one who is here that like the wise men, we would all bow in worship to the king, that it would be with exceeding joy knowing that he is the savior of the world. Thank you that even in this story in Matthew's gospel of so many Jewish people coming to worship the king, that you included Gentiles so that we could know that Canadians and Americans and Chinese and Palestinians and Irish and Scottish and French and Sudanese and people from all over the world could come and worship the king, that the light has come and he has shone that light on all the peoples to save his people from their sins. We thank you for that and we pray that you would continue to encourage us to worship that king in our daily lives. We pray in Jesus' name. All right, at this time, it's the end of the month. It's not only been the Christmas month, but the end of this month. It's our practice here at um, Arendelle Bible Chapel to have communion at the end of the month. So I hope that on your way in, if you want to participate, you've picked up your wafer and your little cup. It's a little bit tricky. There's a couple of layers there that you have to be able to peel. 
but we just want to take some time to worship the Lord. Jesus came to end the exile and to bring in a new covenant. And I want to read from 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23, where Jesus talks about this new covenant that he is bringing in. So Paul, talking to the church in Corinth, says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the night or that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I'd like you to take the bread. I'm going to take a moment and pray and thank God for the body of Jesus who was willing to give his life for us and to be the bread of life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to take of this bread. In the wilderness, you fed your people every day with bread. But every day they had to come back and get more bread. And yet Jesus is the bread of life that feeds us with an everlasting bread. And so I pray now as we take this symbol of of Jesus, the bread of life, that we would rejoice in the fact that Jesus was willing to give his body to give us life so that we could be your children. So as we take of this bread now, bless it to us and help us to remember all that Jesus has accomplished for us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take the bread together. And also the cup, the cup symbolizing the blood of Jesus. Every covenant, the book of Hebrews says, is put into effect by blood. And Jesus' blood put into effect this new covenant that God has with his people. And by the blood of Jesus, our sins are covered and we can be at peace with God. Let's drink of this together. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that Jesus was willing to inaugurate the new covenant in his blood. That he came to earth, as we've seen in this past month, as a baby, willing to live that perfect life so that he could give us that bread of life, that we could have eternal life. And that his body was broken for us on the cross. And that his blood was shed on the cross for us to give us forgiveness of sins, to give us eternal life. Thank you for that new covenant that he has inaugurated. And we pray that we would be faithful to that covenant and to 
the Savior who brought that covenant into effect. I pray that we would be a people pleasing to you and worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray in Jesus' name.